We cover all kinds of throwback reads here on the podcast, but every once in a while, we take it all the way back to talk about a real classic. This week, we do just that, with a conversation about A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett. I've gotten lots of requests for this title, and I'm excited to bring it to you on episode 182. A Little Princess was published in 1905 and was later adapted into one of my favorite childhood movies in the 90s. It follows the riches-to-rags, then-back-to-riches journey of Sarah Crewe, whose father sends her away from their home in India to go to school in London. We get into all of the heartbreaking details of the plot later in this episode, so I won't bore you with those details now. Over the next hour, you'll hear my guests and I consider the ways in which adaptations can impact our understanding of stories, discuss the at-times creepy gender and parental dynamics in the book, and process the harsh reality presented to us in A Little Princess. We also talk about matters of race, morality, toxic positivity, and privilege. We ask ourselves a lot of questions about Sarah herself, such as, is Sarah too perfect? And my personal favorite, was Sarah Crewe the original manifesting babe? My guest today is Danya Kukafka, whose new novel, Notes on an Execution, is now available. Danya is also the author of Girl in Snow, which was a national bestseller, an Indie Next pick, and a BNN Discover pick. She works as a literary agent with Trellis Literary Management. A fun fact about Danya, as a student at New York University, she created a major that was actually called the art of the novel, which makes me want to go back and do college all over again. Learn more about Danya's work at danyakukafka.com and follow her on Instagram and Twitter at danyakukafka. Thanks, Danya, for spending time with me to record this episode. If you would like to spend a little more time with SSR, check us out on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. As this episode drops, we are just one week away from a new month of reading in the SSR Book Club, also known as the SSRBC, which you can join for free. In March, the SSRBC will be reading another classic, Betsy Tacey. Look no further for a great community and an excuse to revisit some literary throwbacks, just like I do on the show. Sign up at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. I know you're going to love today's episode, and if you do, it would mean so much to me if you would share it. Tell the people in your life all about SSR, post about the podcast on your social media, or leave a five-star rating or review on your listening platform of choice. Podcasters are constantly asking for reviews because they really do help our shows grow. You can also help SSR grow by supporting it on Patreon. As a patron, you'll contribute a few dollars every month to this independent pod in exchange for exclusive rewards, including access to the SSR Discord channel, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, reading recap videos, behind-the-scenes info, and more. When you contribute $5 or $10 a month, you also get to be a part of our SWR Shit We Read Patreon Book Club, which I facilitate myself. In March, we will be reading Sex Cult Nun by Faith Jones, and we would love to have you along for the ride. And here's the big news. SWR is officially going monthly, so there's even more fun and book talk to be had. Learn more and become a patron at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Shout out to all of the current patrons listening now. I appreciate you so much. If you're in the market for your next favorite audiobook, make sure you check out Libro FM. 
I love Libro FM because it gives you the chance to support independent bookstores instead of giant companies when you listen to the books on your TBR list. The audiobooks you get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Danya. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I think you might win the enthusiasm award for the last <laughs> couple of months. Like it makes me so happy that you're so excited to be here. I really am. And you know what? I do get that a lot. I'm a pretty enthusiastic person. <laughs> That's a good way to be though. Like sometimes I feel like I really have to draw some enthusiasm just because I feel like I'm not natural. I don't come across that way naturally to people. So it's so refreshing, especially in these like very isolated times when all of my interactions are happening through a screen. It's like really refreshing and lovely to have you just clearly so excited. So thank you for being excited. And thank you for coming on to the podcast. Yes, thank you. Um, yes, if you can tell for a writer, particularly, I'm a pretty, uh, pretty raging extrovert. So I'm ready. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is, because I'm so used to talking to writers, and I'm a writer. <laughs> And obviously a major reader. And so I'm just like not used to mm-hmm. such effusive energy. And I love it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm here for it. And I'm excited to talk to you today about Francis Hodgson's Hodgson's. That's a weird word to say. Francis Hodgson Burnett's. Is that correct? I, I think? think that's right. I'm looking at the name right now. And I think you're right. Yes, that feels phonetically <laughs> correct. Francis Hodgson Burnett's 1905 novel, A Little Princess. And oh, I can't wait to talk about this because it brings back movie memories for me more than book memories. But before I share my experience with this story, I want to hear from you about why you wanted to talk about this book and any specific memories you have about this content, whether it's book or movie. Yeah, so I was really excited about this book as an option because I know that I read it as a child, but I don't remember really anything about it. I have like very specific, like when I remember the title of the book, I have really specific images that came to my head, which was like a little girl in an attic that used to have fancy things. And that's all I could remember. And I don't think I ever watched the movie. I think I only read the book as a kid. So yeah, I have no visual memories from the movie. So, oh, and I also was like, I think there's a monkey in that. And you know what? I was right. (laughs) You were right. Yes. And I have to I have to pause because mm-hmm. I'm about to give you more homework and that's that you need to watch the 1995 movie. Okay. Okay. I mean, I'm in. I'm like pretty obsessed now, so I'm in. <laughs> okay, I have not watched the movie as part of this like revisiting, so I cannot vouch for it and I cannot say how much it holds up, mm-hmm. but what I can tell you is that it was a major cornerstone of my childhood. I love that. I love that. Yeah, so I when I think about A Little Princess, I think about like my worn out VHS tape of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I just remember sitting and watching the movie and like constantly opening and closing, opening and closing that VHS 
the plastic holder thing mm-hmm. and it would get all kind of like scratched on the edges. I have like these very like visceral sense memories of this movie. And I don't know if it was a movie that was like just important to me, like if it was sort of like a quirky thing that like my mom found or if it was more of a widespread I remember seeing thing. it around. I, okay. I might have watched it. If I saw it, I don't remember it. But like I, I can picture the cover for sure, the movie cover, which totally makes sense. I think I think it was around. Yeah. Like in, in, a, in a blockbuster, you know? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like Mrs. Doubtfire, but it was no. like out there. There was definitely no Mrs. Doubtfire, but it was around. And there were some interesting choices made in that adaptation that I might bring up as we talk about the book today, because I oh, do I'd think that there, that. yeah, I think there are people in our listener community who have mentioned to me that they watched the movie. And so I think they'll be curious about some of those choices because I certainly was. And for me, because I have such clear memories of the movie, like it was interesting to me to to reflect on the impact that like movies have on the way we understand stories. Because I think so often as readers, we are like so protective of the source material and we go to the source material and it's like book first, movie second. And I generally feel that way. I actually try not to bring movie adaptations into the book podcast conversations that much, just because I think a lot of us are purists about the original stories. But because the movie sticks with me so much and like it honestly affected the way I read the book. So I thought that was just kind of like an interesting exercise. Oh, definitely. And I'm excited that like you have the movie perspective, but I don't. So I think it'll be really interesting to hear about like how we digested it differently. Yeah, I should have rewatched it. I probably will. Listeners, I will make sure that I include a trailer for that movie in the show notes for this episode if you want to go check it out and feel as warm and fuzzy as I just did watching that trailer. There have been a few other adaptations. Um, There was one in the 30s starring Shirley Temple, which I've never seen. And then I believe it's been adapted in several other languages. The story of this book is actually kind of interesting. So it actually first appeared as short stories in a magazine. And then the author, Frances Hodgson Burnett, I feel like I'm still not saying her name right, but Frances Hodgson Burnett, that second word just feels weird. It's like not rolling off my tongue. There's a lot of consonants right next to each other. (laughs) Yeah. So then Frances Hodgson Burnett turned it into a three-act play, I believe, that started in London and then moved to New York. And then it was after that that a publisher came to her and asked her to fill out the stories from the magazine and then from the play into a book. Wow. I didn't know any of that. Fun facts. That's what I found. So let's talk about like how you felt getting into this book. We meet Sarah. I have a lot of thoughts about Sarah and I can't wait to hear what you think about her. I think she makes a pretty strong first impression and I pulled out some quotes that I think like really hit her character home for me, but I want to hear your thoughts first. Yeah. So I read this book over Christmas when oh, I perfect. was stranded in the Newark airport for four um, days. Not perfect. Um, <laughs> less perfect. I, I had a cozy, cozy time reading it and it, it, I opened it and felt that it was just immediately so much more readable than I had expected, you know, for such an old classic. Um, I rarely read classics. So it's just like generally not my vibe. But I found that this one moves so quickly and it makes sense to me that it's such an iconic children's book. I immediately was like, oh, yeah, I get it. Um, like you can just you open it and you can just fall in. And I found that I was, you know, reading 50 pages without even noticing it. And Sarah definitely makes a first impression. You know, there were quite a few moments in the book where I was like, oh, you know, Sarah was, I was just like Sarah as a kid. But then there were a lot of moments where I was like, no, I definitely wasn't. (laughs) 
Yeah, there are a lot of moments where you're like, no real kid has ever been like Sarah. Never, (laughs) never. She's way too perfect in like a weird way too. And, you know, we can get into talking about sort of like the morals, the moral of the story, which I find really problematic in some ways that I, that totally went over my head as a kid reading this. But I do love, what I love about Sarah is her tendency toward daydreaming and invention and and imagination and that was what I really connected with as a kid and I think that's what I still connect with now like I I immediately was like oh that girl is making up stories with her dolls and I totally totally get that yeah imagination is definitely a theme for Sarah and throughout the book it gets her through a lot of good and bad times in the book but I wanted to share one quote that really spoke to me from that first page where we meet Sarah so she's seven years old But we read, the fact was, however, that she was always dreaming and thinking odd things and could not herself remember any time when she had not been thinking things about grown-up people and the world they belonged to. She felt as if she had lived a long, long time. And that is really relatable to me. Like, I think that I was, I always joke, like, when I turned 30 two years ago, people were like, oh, like, how do you feel? Do you feel weird about being 30? And I was like, no, I've always been 30. Like, I, I honestly think that I have always been 30 years old. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but I I think that, and I don't know for sure if I read this as a kid, I think maybe I read it as like a great illustrated classic or something like in a shortened abbreviated version. But I think I probably connected A, with her imagination and B, with this like sort of sense that she is older than she chronologically is, which I think is endearing, but also like worrying to an adult reading it because Mm -hmm. she bears a lot of responsibility. And there are some weird like gender dynamics, I think, going on, especially in her relationship with her dad. Oh, absolutely. Um, First of all, I will also say my mom always says I was born 26. And so I totally (laughs) totally relate to that too. Um, And when I turned 26, I was like, hmm, this is interesting. I've arrived. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, uh, she's so like, otherworldly and wise. And I think talking about the gender dynamics is really interesting because I was also thinking a lot about the weird mother-child relationship that she has with Lottie, right? A small girl. And how bizarre that is and how much responsibility she carries for this child who is truly such a child while Sarah, only however four years older, is so not a child even a little bit. And that I found really interesting. Yeah. So when we meet her, she almost has this like wife quality like mm-hmm. her dad mm-hmm. actually calls her his little missus which is weird. yeah um very weird. and very weird. I do think their relationship is generally very sweet and it doesn't lean creepy in the way that I feel like I read a lot of father-daughter relationships in the classics like it feels very loving and respectful and like <laughs> as unpatriarchal as I feel like it can be in 1905, yeah. if that makes sense. Um, except for the fact that he has this weird nickname for her and that there is this sense that she is like taking care of him and his house in the way that like any woman should, like yeah, according to the seven. standards at the time. She's right. Seven. She's, she's seven. <laughs> and her mom died, I believe, during childbirth. So like theoretically, like Sarah has been the little missus forever has never known anything other than bearing that kind of responsibility, that typical like heteronormative, traditional, like feminine responsibility for the household. And she accepts that and is totally comfortable with it. And even later in the book, when she makes the acquaintance of these other men, it's almost like she's like, oh, like, I've got this. I'm happy to take on those roles for you too. Mm -hmm. And in return, she gets showered with clothes and gifts and beautiful things. 
yeah. right? Which um, is obviously her fortunes change partway through the book. But even as she's being showered with them, she doesn't seem to really care, right? Like that's not what she's in it for, which then becomes the whole moral of the story. And I, that made me a little uncomfortable too. <laughs> Quite a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I think we definitely need to get into that. I also mm-hmm. wanted to comment briefly on what you mentioned about her relationship with Lottie, this like mm-hmm. maternal thing. And what struck me about that whole part of the book where Sarah just sort of like assumes responsibility for this child who desperately misses her mother, which is heartbreaking. Like those scenes of Lottie processing her grief that Mm -hmm. has clearly gone unprocessed for way too long and trying to find a friend in Sarah, it's all really difficult to read and it's very sad. And I, I think like at a friend level, I'm so happy that Lottie has Sarah to look to as a support system and like the fact that Sarah is willing to be a resource for her and a shoulder to cry on for her is really lovely. I think what's so striking to me in this book that was written in the late 19th century, early 20th century, as opposed to the way we would talk about a relationship like this now, is that the mode that Sarah immediately switches into is that of a mother. Mm -hmm. And that that feels like it comes so naturally to her. And I think this is something that continued. I mean, it probably still continues, like the whole notion of playing house when kids are growing up. I mean, even when I was growing up in the 90s, like that was a very common thing. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I will play the mom and you will play the dad. And yeah. thankfully, I think we are understanding that we cannot and should not live in those binaries anymore. And I hope that kids growing up now realize that like they don't have to and should not be expected to immediately fill those roles unless they want to. And that's great. But even as a 31-year-old woman, like watching a child be like, yes, I will be your mother. I- I'm sitting here with my golden retriever. And <laughs> I'm like, I don't feel ready. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what really struck me about that too, there are a couple scenes where the other adults call in Sarah as Lottie's mother because they can't, they can't handle her. They can't control her. She's a screaming child. So get her mom in here and fix her. Right. And Sarah comes in and does. Um, And I found that like the other adults are like, oh no, this is the child's mom, you know, bring her in. And they're, they're grown up ladies who are also subscribing to this, which I found very strange, but you know, they're not maternal figures at all. So there's also that, right. And Sarah's, Sarah's um, such a contrast to them, I think, intentionally. Yeah, totally different, like energy. So let's talk about this, the school where Sarah has found herself, because of course, the setting plays a huge role in what happens to her. She was born in India. And I guess we are, we're made to understand that pretty much all children of British expats in India in this time period are ultimately expected to go back to London to be educated. There's a lot to unpack there. I don't know that we're going to be able to do that today, (laughs) but I'll just leave that there. And I think, I think there's, we can mull on that um, and what that means, but she does that. Her dad is dropping her off at the beginning of the book at Miss Minchin's seminary, secondary school for girls. And this is the school that her mother attended, which is, so it's very special to her because she doesn't remember her mother. And I I loved that detail. Like this is something she's always been excited to do and it means a lot to her family. And I'm sure it's very sentimental for her dad. And she kind of has this like premium experience as a student there. I think they call her a parlor boarder because she has like a full apartment to herself instead of like a shared room with another student. She has not only a bedroom, but like a playroom. And she has like just rooms to exist in that are beautifully furnished. And her father essentially like takes her on a shopping spree and then leaves Miss Minchin, who's in charge of the school, a huge sum of money and is like, Money is no object. Buy my child whatever she wants. And just let me know later, like how much I owe you if you go over budget. And 
So it seems like it's kind of going to be great. Like she's smart. She is excelling in school so much so that she is almost like apologizing for it in a weird way. Like she doesn't want the teachers, especially Miss Minchin, to be like embarrassed by her, which I thought was kind of interesting. There's a scene where she hides the fact that she's fluent in French because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to offend Miss Minchin. Mm-hmm. What did you mm-hmm. think of that? I thought that was so interesting because she's in that moment, taking care of everyone else's feelings. And that's all she's doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a seven year old who speaks fluent French, having that sort of like insight and empathy immediately into, oh, this might make other people uncomfortable. I better not show it, even though it's a skill of mine. I don't know any seven year old like that. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I thought I thought that was an interesting character building moment and one I wasn't quite sure I believed in. I don't buy this, Sarah. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And then she ends up getting in trouble because Miss Minchin Mm -hmm thinks that she lied like Miss Minchin as we see throughout the book is really going to do everything she can do to put Sarah in like no win situations but at least in the beginning of the book Miss Minchin like wants Sarah to succeed even though she hates her because she knows that she stands to make a lot of money and gain a lot of acclaim by having a child like Sarah at her school there's kind of this weird like sense of of PR running throughout the book where like I mean, I don't know how word would get out in 1905 about things like this, but it's like Miss Minchin is very aware of how it will look to the outside world for her to treat Sarah, who comes from this particular background, in a certain way, for better or for worse. So yeah, she's like, okay, you're annoying. I think that you tried too hard and you're way too nice. Like nobody believes that Sarah can actually be as smart and as nice and as perfect as she is, including the adults. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she goes on to prove them all wrong, right? That's the whole point of the book, right? Is that she goes on to be so kind and so smart and so loving to every single person she meets that she sort of like manifests her own fortune, which feels, you know, I I definitely want to talk about that too at another point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a twist on this question that I think I Mm want to ask you a little bit later on, but I think I'll, I think I'll ask a more basic version of it now. And that's, what do you think of a character who is so perfect? You know, I, I struggled with her at points. There were certain times at which I really identified with Sarah. And there were, you know, being like a quiet bookish child who like, you know, doesn't really want to play outside, (laughs) you know, just wants to be home, learning, comfy, cozy. That was totally me as a kid. And those aspects of Sarah's world, I also, I, I definitely remember as a child being like, oh, it's me. But there is a point at which her good heartedness and her kindness just feel, I mean, so over the top and so unbelievable that I'm not sure I, yeah, I I wasn't sure I believed, believed her at every point. And I thought also her relationship with Ermingard is really interesting because she's so superior, right? And even as she's kind to this, this other girl, the other girl clearly so looks up to her and so sees her as like a princess, right? That's the whole thing. They have this mentality of Sarah as a princess and the other girl looks up to Sarah and there's no point, even when Sarah falls from grace, that the two girls are equal just based on personality, which I found very strange and kind of alarming. Yes, and I think even as... Sarah seems to be befriending Ermengarde and like is doing her Sarah thing and being so kind and inclusive and generous. Like the language that we get about Ermengarde as readers is still that like Ermengarde is unattractive and Ermengarde Mm -hmm. is fat and Ermengarde is not smart. And so this isn't a first person narrative. So it's not as though Sarah is like assigning those words herself, but that's still the perception that we're getting as we follow Sarah through this experience. Right. And it is it is sort of strange just and and I noticed it even when she meets Becky who mm-hmm. we'll talk more about I'm sure now is uh 
who's I believe I forget exactly what her her title is, but she's she's a maid of some sort. She's like a chimney sweep, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Her main responsibility yeah. is to deal with like the fire, the fireplaces mm-hmm. in the school. She's a specific kind of maid. She doesn't work in the kitchen or anything like that. But Sarah is drawn to Becky because she sees that Becky wants to sit and listen to her tell stories to the other girls. But then in sort of the same breath, Sarah uses the word dingy to describe a Becky. And I think, like, I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing Sarah too hard because it's actually kind of refreshing that she's not perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's kind of telling that she is having some level of inner monologue about, like, how she actually is perceiving what's around her because she's a child and kids don't always have filters. But it was strange that sometimes, like, there was just such a huge divide between how she is acting on the outside and like her performance yeah, and how she is processing these new experiences that are so removed from the life she left behind in India, which was like all glamour all the time. Mm-hmm. And there's also this sense that she knows she's better than everybody else. And there's just no question of it for her, which yeah. is pretty unattractive. <laughs> Even yeah. as she's being, you know, bestowing her gems of kindness upon the people, she's still being very, very superior um, and very sort of high and mighty about who she is morally and, you know, intellectually and financially, obviously. But like, you know, I think the moral story is that like, you can still be morally superior if you don't have money, right? <laughs> right. As as you're very polite. Yeah. I mean, this feels like a good time to talk about how she gets her nickname of a little princess and kind yeah. of what it means. So she gets it because she like always looks fab pretty much. Yeah. Like she <laughs> yeah. has this beautiful carriage that her dad secured for her before he went back to India and she's sort of just like going around town like in furs and fancy shoes and in her carriage and so the girls at school yeah it kind of starts as a joke I think like oh the Mm -hmm. princess and it becomes more serious and it was interesting because it feels like the people who like Sarah use it as a term of endearment and the girls that don't like her Lavinia of course being the main sort of queen bee who does not like Sarah, they use it in a demeaning way, sort of sarcastically, like, oh, that little princess. So it's it's a title that is sort of like for all intents and purposes, it just works for Sarah, no matter how you feel about her. And I think there's something satisfying to Sarah too, in mm. saying, well, I'm the princess and that's just who I am. And, yeah. and it's never a question of whether I was ever going to be anything else. I'm always the princess, no matter what happens to me, right? And if I maintain the attitude of a princess, I will be a princess. And you know, in a way she feels her own fate like that, even though she doesn't, it all comes from her privilege anyway. But it's, you know, it's, we're supposed to read it like she does. Yeah. Well, and she meets Becky Mm -hmm. and they start to build a friendship. And this is where I have to, to call it a major change that was made in the 1995 movie. And it was, I found myself looking on every page where we, where we saw Becky to find out if this was from the book. So the actress who plays Becky in the 1995 adaptation is black. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. Yes. And so I, having never read the book before and not knowing about the other adaptations, I was like, I couldn't stop thinking about if I was supposed to be reading race as part of their dynamic. Interesting. Because that would add a totally different white savior layer to what goes on between the two of them. But from the research that I've done in preparation for this, I think we are meant to read Becky in the book as a white little girl who comes from a much 
more working class background who, of course, is like sort of alone in the world and has had to get this job at the school. But she is white, whereas in the movie in the 90s, they made her black. Wow, that adds Mm -hmm. a whole other layer. I did not read any specific racial context into it. Yeah, I, I did not pick up any clues that she was a different race from Sarah. So I don't know. That's really interesting. So you said in your research, you you did find that historically she's intended to be white. As far as I can tell, she is intended to be white. And I do suspect that given the time period in which this was written and, and the way that the author describes the characters of Indian descent who we meet later in the book, like mm-hmm. I feel like we would know if yeah. Becky was meant to be black. But because I have such like an attachment to the movie, it was so hard for me not to read it that way with Becky. And I thought that was like what really, that's what motivated me to ask the question about like how much movies can sometimes impact the way we think about stories more globally. Like even if it's an adaptation, if you see the adaptation enough times, that does begin to influence the way you think about the original material that the adaptation came from. That's so interesting. And, you know, since I haven't seen the movie or don't remember seeing the movie, I have none of that context or none of that connotation and was not reading any racial dynamic into that. And I was, of course, reading racial dynamics into Sarah and the Indian gentleman and his, what's his name? Ram Dass, right? Ram Dass, Uh, yeah. Yeah, because that's so explicit. Uh, that's so fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah. So that was really interesting to me as as a fan of the movie. But she meets Becky. They start to become friends. She basically tells Becky that anytime she wants to come hang out in Sarah's room, they can sort of like time it properly. So when Becky has to work, Sarah can be there and she can continue to tell Becky this story that she's really interested in. And there's this scene where, according to an article that I found in The Toast that really dives into this book, we see Sarah check her privilege a little bit, which I think is, it's an interesting way to think about it in 2022, because obviously like that's not language that I would have known how to use years ago when I read (laughs) this book. But basically, um, and this is before Sarah's fortunes change. She says to Becky, why we are just the same. I am only a little girl like you. It's just an accident that I am not you and you are not me. And I think that that in that moment, I do feel like Sarah is like, yeah, I mean, this could have happened to anybody. But at the same time, it's like, but lucky for me, this is what I got. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that feels to me like one of the only moments and I hadn't picked it out myself. But now that you say it, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I do. I do remember that dynamic. That feels to me like one of the only moments in which Sarah um, like genuinely feels equal to the people around her. Um, I think for the rest of the book, I really read it like she knows she's better. Right. And that's one of the rare moments in which she's you know, not not sort of like gifting someone her attention or gifting someone her time or, or her kindness, um, but really looking at them. Yeah. I See, I hadn't thought about that part of it that much. So I'm so appreciative that you were kind of tracking that throughout your reading because it is interesting to think about. But okay, so we've been, we've been referencing this moment when things change for Sarah. Mm-hmm. And this is when things get pretty dark. Yeah. And I, I do have to say that because I know the movie and I know the story, And I kind of knew what was coming. Although in the movie, the father doesn't die. He's wounded and they reunite. Spoiler alert. Sorry. Um, (laughs) But I am not generally an emotional reader. I don't really cry when I read ever. I don't really cry when I watch movies. I was deeply emotional from like page three of this book. Like I felt so sad. And I think the writing is part of it. And also just because I was like emotionally preparing myself. But I think the second half of this book after this change in Sarah's circumstances, it's really just about the like very harsh realities of mm-hmm. 
this time period because things that I personally would never think about as a potential consequence of even the worst possible tragedy happening in my life in 2022, like I don't think that some of the fallout would equal what happens in this book because of the system. Oh, it's so cold. It's so it's wet. So cold. It's so dirty. It's so hungry. I was like, oh, awful. I, you know, they're, yeah, no. Okay, I so. Yeah, it's absolutely. <laughs> so it, it also it happens at Sarah's birthday party, which is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so tragic. I did notice like we don't actually get a scene in which she is informed of her father's death, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of interesting. And I was kind of happy about it because I like don't know that I was prepared. But basically what happens is um, Sarah's father, who is in India, he was like all excited because he was getting into this deal with his friends where they were buying diamond mines or investing in diamond mines. And the deal turned south and went bad. And there was some like weird language about like how he got sick. I think like some brain fever. Um, I'm sure it was some other disease that they didn't correctly define in the book. But a combination of his like bad fortunes and this illness that he developed caused him to pass away. And he's now died tragically and Sarah is alone in the world. And because he has now lost all of his money because of this investment in the diamond mines, Miss mentioned basically like, has to figure out how to make up for the huge investment that she's made in Sarah's education. So Sarah's like indebted to her now because Miss Minchin has maintained the certain standard of living for Sarah through these years that she's been at the school. And Miss Minchin has to like figure out how to reconcile that without getting bad PR and like putting her out on the street. Do you feel like I captured that accurately? That's a lot of information. I thought that was beautiful. Thank you. So Sarah is like not even allowed to go back to her bedroom. She's immediately sent to the attic. I don't know why that detail struck me so hard. Like she just wants to go back to her room to get her stuff. And they're like, oh no, you don't you, you don't go there anymore. And she is put to work. And some of the work is not terribly brutal. Like she does have to do some physical labor, but she's also encouraged to like teach the younger students. And like, she kind of has a mishmash of responsibilities. I think they want her to be a teacher at the school long term. So she's learning how to teach the little ones because they do love her so much. And they kind of like naturally flock to her anyway. But the challenge is that because she works so much, she's like not able to keep up with her own studies. So she's like training herself to be a teacher on the side. And like, it's just there's like a lot going on in her life. And it's very sad. But I would say the only upside is that she really gets to cultivate this new friendship with Becky. Yeah, I love those scenes of the two of them sort of sitting together, huddling in the cold, imagining and, you know, they are equal in that moment. And I think the whole point is that Sarah sort of maintains her mentality of of a princess, even through the hardship. And she sort of helps Becky imagine that life for herself, too. And then eventually, you know, spoiler, gives Becky that life as well, to a certain extent. But I think those scenes between the two of them are so beautiful. And I, I also really love the moment that uh, Ermengarde comes up to the attic after Sarah has lost her fortune and is like, oh, you're living like this now? Well, that's okay. I'm going to hang out with you anyway because I really like you. <laughs> and that was like a moment to me of loyalty and real friendship. And I, I really enjoyed reading those parts, even though they were like really difficult to read too because it was so, I mean, just the physical, uncomfortable reality of what she's forced to live at that point. It sounds terrible. There's really, it's not, there's no like modern comparable way to describe it, I don't think, just based on the time period, really. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot that's wrong in our world right now, of course. And speaking as somebody who is who lives in a place where I feel like there are a lot of privileges and systems that are set up to avoid things like this happening. Like I know that that's not the case in all places and Mm -hmm. these realities are still very much the norm in certain parts of the world. But it did sort of just shock me to think about like 
how many systems are in place now, at mm-hmm. least in sort of my immediate universe to prevent these situations from happening. And that does not mean that the realities of today are like sunny and shiny because they're not. So many of those systems are still broken. Yeah. But this situation that Sarah has gotten herself into is like, she is absolutely 100% alone. There is not even anybody who's really like pretending to be her advocate. Yeah, aside from, of course, Becky, who has less power than even than even Sarah. And I think this is also the point at which, which Miss Mention turns into just a total villain, right? Mm. Um, and she's just, I mean, she's always been a villain, but at this point, she's just like pure evil. And I, I did want a little more humanity from her. I thought that would actually make her more compelling as a villain. I don't know. I love my, I love my complex villain. But there's also Miss Mention's sister, right, who sort of provides a foil to her um, and is, is, sort of attuned to a world in which she could be kind to Sarah, but is not allowed to be kind to Sarah because Miss Minchin forbids it. Those are really good points. I think I had a hard time knowing how to read Miss Minchin because I knew that she was going to become the villain. And so in the first part of the book where she is presenting herself as somewhat kind, like even though we know that it's fate. We don't like her. You never like her. But no, there's a point at which she becomes just like pure, terrible evil. Yeah, it was a little bit extreme. And it happened very quickly. And it was strange to me that there wasn't even a moment where she was like, Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry that like this 12 year old's father died, and she hasn't seen him in five years. And she then her life is over as she knows it like it, it is such a sudden change for Sarah. And I'm also like, you're in the business of working with children like yeah, do you not have yeah. any empathy at all yeah I was su- I was surprised by that and I also felt that I would believe in her character a little more I think if she had a, a few more dimensions to her um in those senses just a little yeah but as Sarah is navigating this new dark harsh reality which involves a lot of like walking in the rain and clothes that don't fit her and being splashed by wagons and like all of these just miserable things being hungry um, she maintains her sunny outlook for the most part. I mean, there are a few moments where we see her getting really down and sort of at the end of her rope, there's a really sad moment with her doll, Emily, who mm. had kind of been her companion since her father left her there because it was the last thing, his last gift to her before he left her at school. And there's a scene that really broke my heart where she's like, no, like you're just a doll. Like you don't mean anything to me anymore. And that really felt like the final break with her father. But th- those moments are few and far between. Like she generally, she generally is like, as long as I can imagine that things are okay, things will be okay. And she spreads that sensibility to Becky and to Ermengarde, like as much as she can. And this is where I wanted to to pose to you kind of the twist on the question that I asked before about whether or not Sarah is too good as a character. My question here is more about toxic positivity, which I think <laughs> is something that we talk about yeah. in 2022 and has become like, I would say like a little bit of a catchphrase in the spaces of these like influencer gurus, kind of self-help influencers um, who are really into like, you can do it, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I do think that like something about Sarah's undying optimism speaks to a very like traditional work ethic and like Mm -hmm. sense of you get up every day and you do the best you can. But there's something in the way that we frame toxic positivity today that made me read her a little bit differently. Oh, now, totally. Especially in the way she talks to Becky, because Mm -hmm. she's like basically saying to Becky, like, no, like we can do it. Everything's going to be fine. And I mean, sure. But Becky was born with 
none of the privileges that Sarah was born with. And like, obviously, Sarah has now been dealt a bad hand and has a lot to overcome. But she at least was starting from a place where she had more resources. And so for her to talk to Becky that way, like, oh, Becky, like, you're gonna go on from here and like, achieve great things. Like, that's ignorant of the challenges like that Becky has yeah. had. It's very offensive. Yeah. So I love that. I just listened to actually, there's a podcast I love called Unladylike. And they just did an episode, or maybe it was a while ago, but I just listened to their episode on manifesting, on oh, yeah. manifesting influencers. Like, manifesting like women. Yeah, exactly. Women out on there on Instagram who are, you know, manifesting, like if you if you think something hard enough, you can get it right. I mean, people who pay tens of thousands of dollars for manifesting trainings and things like that. Sarah's totally manifesting here, but she's manifesting with privilege, which is like a different thing from telling someone like Becky to manifest. Right. Um, and I think I think also it's not realistic. Like you there is a certain point at which if you've lost everything, if you've lost the person you love the most in the world, you've lost all of your physical comforts, like lose your shit a little, you know, that's okay. Break down, be a person. That's fine. She never does break down. Be a kid. She's a kid. Be a kid. I totally agree that moment with Emily is really heartbreaking. That's the closest I think she gets to a, a breakdown or a meltdown. But I mean, just like cry it out, girl. You gotta like, <laughs> it's sad. It's a sad, sad thing that happened to her um, in so many different ways. And she never confronts that. She just sort of beats it back like with a baseball bat, right? Right, and expects other people to be the same. Yeah, exactly. Especially yeah. people who have never had good fortune in the first place. She also expects them to act like that. And it's almost, you know, the moral of the book is when she comes back into her fortune, which we'll get into, it's sort of like, well, if you think enough, if you manifest it hard enough, you'll get what you want, right? Um, but that comes with this, yeah, this sort of like toxic and terrifying concept of privilege and toxic positivity. I, I love that you brought that up. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure to be that optimistic all the time and to be able to like imagine your way out of anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's too much, especially for a child like Becky. Like, It's also like ignorant, right? It's a little yeah. bit ignorant to think that you can imagine your way out of a situation as terrible as that and that you can expect everyone else to do the same around you when they haven't had the life experiences that you've had. Yeah, I, I think the, the comparison to uh, Instagram, Instagram influencers is totally real. <laughs> Modern day Sarah would be a manifesting babe. Um, okay, let's talk about the new neighbor, Mr. Karis Ford. Yes. <laughs> so this guy moves in next door to this house that having moved into the attic, Sarah is like desperate to have filled because there's this window that's like directly across from the window where she sits and watches the sunset every night. And she's like, if only somebody else were in this other window and then we could watch the sunset together and I could have a friend. So she sees that a new family, some new people are moving into this house. And she also realizes that this new resident of the house next door seems to have a connection to a family that she kind of like people watches on her errands called, and she calls them the large family because there's a lot of them. So she realizes that there's some connection between the large family and her new neighbor, who we ultimately learn is named Mr. Karasford. And he is Indian. And he has a servant who is also Indian, whose name is Ram Das. And okay, so we have to talk about this part of it, because there is a great deal of fetishization of the Indian culture in this book. It is Um, pretty alarming. It is pretty alarming. Also, Sarah speaks fluent Hindi. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, what doesn't she do, Danya? I know. She, knows she, does she can do all. everything. She does yeah. it all. Um, and so there's this moment, right, when she and Ram Dass both have their little heads poked out of their attic ceilings and she starts speaking Hindi to him and he's like, oh, this girl gets it, right? And I have We're the this, same. Yeah, right. we're, yeah, we're exactly the same. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I had this moment where I was like, what is happening here? Also, Mr. Carrisford is referred to as the Indian gentleman throughout this. And am I correct in that he's actually British? I was confused. I think he is. I think he's actually British. And I think he might be white. Um, I'm not sure if he's actually an Indian gentleman. I'm not sure either, but I I do think he might be British. Um, I'm not sure what page I picked that up on. I could be wrong. And listeners, please fact check me if I am. I think you might be right, though, because I similarly, like for most of most of the time that Sarah is acquainted with him, he is described as the Indian gentleman, which I obviously dislike. Like, that's not how we should be describing our characters. And then she seems to, I actually then started to get a little bit confused when there weren't names attached to like the actions. I wasn't sure mm-hmm. if we were talking about Mr. Carisford or Ramdas, just because mm-hmm. they both were kind of like working together all the time. So I agree with you. There was some ambiguity there about what's actually like about what's going on. Yeah. I also think Ram Dass is so clearly described as an Indian man, where Mr. Harrisford yeah. is not. Like, Ram yeah. Dass wears a turban. Ram Dass is described as having dark skin. Ram Dass speaks Hindi. And mm-hmm. Mr. Harrisford never has any of those qualities outwardly in the book. Yeah. Then it's so interesting to me that the author would have him, like, as the Indian gentleman for the vast majority of, like, the time that we are with him on the page. It's weird. Yeah. It's super weird. It's really weird. There's these these very strange racial dynamics that I found obviously super problematic that are just like, I mean, glaringly problematic for a, today's reader. And, you know, I don't think you can read it without thinking about those things at any point today. No, you, you kind of have to acknowledge that. And I think that like the movie, unfortunately, takes that fetishization to another level. So I will mm-hmm. warn you about that. But I oh, do want to take a moment to share a quote from an article in School Library Journal, which named A Little Princess as number 56 on their list of the top 100 children's novels of 2012. And in this article, the author quotes another article, which is entitled Playing House, Frances Hodgson Burnett's Victorian Fairy Tale by Eileen Connell. And Eileen Connell writes, like other discourses of this period, the story represents India as a locus of exotic. In doing so, Burnett obscures the reality that this imperialist exploitation of India contributed significantly to the economic expansion in the 19th century, in 19th century Great Britain, that both produced and upheld the ideology of separate spheres informing British domestic life. Instead of representing an Indian who gratefully receives the fruits of English civilization, Burnett constructs an Indian who gives Sarah the services and commodities representing his subjugation to a country that robs his own country of its resources. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I felt like I just wanted to yeah. read that because I think That's that perfect. says a lot. Like, it says it all. Same. Exact, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> yes. I too would have written those those words exactly as Eileen Connell did. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, that's so true. And that just, you know, is exploring all, I think that peels back the layers of the dynamic really, really beautifully. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, plus one. (laughs) Retweet to that. Yeah, Um, for sure. So Sarah develops these friendships with her new neighbors from a distance. And there's a point in the story where Rondas decides that he like sees that Sarah is in such a bad situation and he like literally wants to make her dreams come true. So it's a little creepy because he is like listening to her. Yeah. He like, he, I think like lays flat on the roof and like listens to her conversations with Becky, like while they're, 
describing all their fantasies of how the room could look in their imaginary world. And he, in the middle of the night, then like brings all of the things that they're imagining into the room and like sets it up just how they wanted it. While she's sleeping. While she's she's sleeping. It's super creepy. I mean, like, thanks, Ramdas. It's super cool of you. But like, it's really creepy. And those are like great scenes in the movie. So buckle up for those. It's really amazing. Like when these girls wake up and it's just like (laughs) everything they ever could want. So they develop this soft spot in their heart for Sarah in the house next door. And they're trying to make her dreams a reality. And at the same time, we find out that Mr. Carisford is on this quest to find a missing girl. And as a reader, like this is where you start wanting to like scream at the characters. Like I was getting so frustrated because it becomes apparent pretty early on that Sarah is the girl that Mr. Carisford is literally searching like all of Europe for. It becomes evident that Mr. Carisford was actually Sarah's father's best friend. Like weird to me that like she never would have met him if they were all living in India at the same time, but that's neither here nor there. And Mr. Carisford was actually the friend that her father went into business with, with the diamond mine. Like they invested together in this mine. And I guess he ended up like getting the money back from the investment. And he is super rich and like has way more money than Sarah's father had to begin with. And he is devastated, like knowing that the daughter of this now long gone father has like suffered as a result of the miscommunication with the investment like he really just needs to like find this missing daughter of his friend and make everything up to her because he has a suspicion that she's probably in a very bad situation and this girl is right next door like he has his lawyer searching Paris Moscow like he's getting all this bad information about where she could be and no it's actually just this girl next door who your servant has been like showering gifts on every single night um which is like a really cool device like I loved that and it was I think by like the third or fourth scene where they're like on the opposite side of Sarah's wall having a conversation about her I was like okay I've had enough like I'm getting really frustrated can we just like connect the dots already and can everything be okay and ultimately like they do make the connection it happens over a monkey which like again love a monkey love a monkey Um, it's also I mean I think especially for children reading this book it's fun to know something before the characters that's true Um, yeah that was that's a really satisfying thing and also the monkey is fun like everyone wants a pet monkey to scamper on into their room and like hang out you know Um, yeah she keeps the monkey overnight at one point and like has little sleepover and like brings him back I'm like I want one it's so fun (laughs) yeah yeah and then mystery how for children yeah like really exciting that's true That's true. And then basically like Mr. Carisford makes everything okay. Um, Once they figure out that Sarah is the missing girl that he's been searching for, he's like, no, you will never go back to Miss Minchin's again. Like you have all the money that you could ever wish for. And this child will never work a day in her life. She moves into his house. Mm -hmm. Becky also benefits from this. I did love that moment. um, Yeah. Where Becky's able to just have such, I mean, she's still a maid, but she has such a better life. Um, And that seems like a true gesture of friendship to me. And, you know, it, it, it seems honest to their power dynamic in which a lot of the book does not seem particularly on emotionally honest to their power dynamic. Yeah. That moment does to me. I also wanted to point out the, there's a scene in which one of the little boys from the large family believes that Sarah is a beggar on the street, right? And gives her money. And all the other kids in the family say, no, that girl's not a beggar. I mean, she's like filthy and she's like obviously starving to death, but there's something about her, right? She doesn't carry herself like a beggar, which I found to be just like so insane and also kind of leads directly to Mr. Harris for finding her because the, the dad of the large family is his lawyer, right? 
And this moment where basically like, I felt like the book was kind of saying, you hold yourself well. If you project privilege and politeness and etiquette and education through any circumstance, you'll get what you really deserve, right? Um, Which kind of is what Sarah does. And I found that a little bit upsetting. Yeah, I think there's a weird conflation of morality and gallantry. Is that uh-huh. the word that I'm yes, looking for? Yes, that's a perfect word. Mm-hmm. Or or of morality and manners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe like a certain kind of like quote, good breeding. When I was watching the trailer for the movie, there's a line that's pretty prevalent there where Sarah is like, and I'm not spoiling because this is in the trailer, but um, Sarah is like, kind of in an argument with Miss Minchin and she says something to the effect of like, I am a princess. Like all girls are princesses. Like, did your dad never tell you you were a princess? And I think it like really, it speaks to this like Disney princess thing that was very big in the nineties, which like, again, this was adapted in the nineties. And so I think like there was this idea of like princess, good, you know, mm-hmm. like, and and I think, yes, if I could be a princess for a day, yeah, like sign me the fuck up. Like I would love yeah. to be a princess for the day. I'm not here to say that that's not a good thing or that it wasn't a really fun fantasy for me to play at and into when I was a kid and that many other people, kids don't enjoy fantasies like that now. But I think there's just like a weird equivalence placed on it in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and when combined with the toxic positivity thing, it's just like a weird moral. Yes. Yeah. I Conflating manners with morality. I think that's exactly what it is. Like the idea that you are a better person if you act a certain way. And that's, that's what Sarah is projecting onto everyone. Like I look at how good of a person I am. I am so polite. I stand with my back straight. I blah, 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 blah. When actually that's just a consequence of having money and having born into a certain privilege station in the world. It doesn't mean she's a better person necessarily, but it's, it's a signal for other people to realize that she's not actually poor, right? Or that she wasn't born for. And that's, I think, yeah, I, I found that sort of hard to grapple with. Yeah. Well, I know we're coming to the end of our time together today, but I want to make sure I ask you how this experience of rereading A Little Princess compares with your memories of reading it when you were a kid. Well, I definitely didn't pick up on any of this when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, like I said, all I took from this was like, oh, sad girl in an attic. Dolls. Dolls, big furs, monkey. That's what right. that's what I took from it as a kid. And like evil, evil orphanage lady, even though yeah. I think in my in my memory it was an orphanage, even though it's a school. Yeah. They all it kind of feel, blend together. It yeah. feels like like Madeline or something like that. You know what I mean? Like I felt like all of those sort of like poor orphaned girl finds her own way in the world stories kind of glued together for me as a kid. Um and this definitely fell in that category. So I mean I this was a a very illuminating experience rereading this as an adult. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Well, and on the positive side, I will say again, the writing is gorgeous. Oh, um, amazing. And, and it was just like lovely and cozy and warm. Mm-hmm. And it was a perfect thing to read over Christmas. And yes. it's also like plot, it's paced and plotted really beautifully. Like it's, it's never, it never lags, it never lingers. It's it's pretty quick read. I felt like it was a little long, if I'm being honest. <laughs> But maybe that's just yes, because fair. I read a lot for this podcast. <laughs> Other than A Little Princess, what have you been reading lately, Danya, that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah. So as I mentioned, they don't read that many classics. So this is going to be a, a super, super tonal shift for us. Yeah. The book I've been recommending to everybody that I really, really loved reading over the summer was called Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. And it is a really sort of like experimental literary novel with a good amount of plot about a young mom who 
actually believes she's physically turning into a dog. Um, and it's really good. I know the premise is like bizarre and the writing is bizarre, but I think it's totally brilliant. And it's about femininity, vulnerability, motherhood, ambition, art. I, I absolutely love that book. So I'm recommending that everywhere. I also really enjoyed The Death of Vivek OG by uh, a Messi. I also read that this year um, and thought that did a like really beautiful structural, structural experiment that you have to read it to see. So really liked that one. Cool. I will include links to both of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode, along with links to your work. Danya, you have a new book out. It is called Notes on an Execution. What can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, so also not a princess story. Um, <laughs> I would have thought otherwise from the title. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> so Notes on an Execution is about a serial killer, but actually it's not really about him at all. It's about the women in his life um, who are sort of uh, invariably affected by his crimes over a period of many years. And the structure counts down in the 12 hours before his execution. It's mostly told from the women's perspective. You know, we see a lot of crime stories that start with a dead body and end with someone in jail. And I really want to, you know, I wrote one myself my first book girl and that's what it is and I really wanted to dig a little deeper this time and sort of flip that narrative over so I hope you I hope you read it and I hope you love it well I know we have a lot of thriller true crime mm-hmm. lovers in our listener family so everybody go on out get yourself a copy of notes on an execution Danya it has been so fun talking with you thank you so much for taking the time this is so fun Thank you. Can I do every episode with you? This is so fun. You're going to have to come back because I would yeah, love to have you. You're always welcome. Any day. This is so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.